What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the State of Film Art Podcast. I am your host, Tamia Faulkner, and today I am so excited about the guest that we have, none other than Miss Deborah Anderson. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing awesome. I am so happy that we are getting the opportunity to do this. I got to talk to you a while back and just your energy and everything that you're putting out there with Black Woman Animator. I'm I'm just really excited to jump into our conversation and also into the world of animation because I don't feel it's something that you see too commonly, especially when it comes to women who are able to um, get their foot in the door and be recognized for, you know, being in this space and existing in this space. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about you and how you got your start in animation? I went to college in upstate New York at Rochester Institute of Technology. Um, So I have a degree in animation. Um, The way I got there um, was not as easy Well, I don't know. It wasn't as easy thought of as my peers. Um, I was a Disney kid. Um, I did draw a lot when I was younger. But for some reason, I mean, I was good at art and math. So a lot of my childhood professions were like, oh, I want to be an architect. I want to be an industrial um, designer, an industrial engineer. And then um, the last thing I wanted to do before I found animation as a career was uh, electrical engineering. And so I, you know, I was part of like the project lead the way classes in, in high school and stuff like that. So I was really good at, you know, math. I didn't really like science, but I always got good grades. So I still was good at science. Um, but what happened is that my father um, is a college professor. He worked for the state of Michigan, but he's also a college professor. And so he knew about dual enrollment. And so me and my twin brother were like the first people at my high school to do dual enrollment. And so I took seven classes at a, a local community college, school class, um, community college. And the seventh class was animation and so, or 3D. And so like, it was like, oh, okay. So I have this um, analytical part of my brain, which was always wanting to be something like with engineering. And then I had this artistic part of my brain where I was always drawing and people thought I traced. And I felt like 3D was a good combination of the two. And so I didn't find animation as a career um, until my senior year of high school. So I was able to luckily apply to colleges and try to um, major in animation. And so, um, and I didn't have that many colleges to choose from because I also wanted to play basketball in college and not a lot of art schools have sports so I only had like three to choose from which was like Savannah College of Art and Design in Georgia RIT and then St. Clair College in Canada and I did get into Grand Valley State University but I wanted to get out of Michigan um because I wanted to like leave my twin (laughs) so so (laughs) so I was trying to go out of state so (laughs) yeah that's how I got into animation so was there something in particular that happened during that senior year of high school because I heard sort of your your journey like hey maybe I'll be an architect electrical engineer industrial designer so when you got to your senior year of high school was there a pivotal moment or anything that really gave you that 
push more so towards animation? Yeah, I mean, it was just the discovery in the in the class that I took at the community college of doing a 3D class. We used a program called 3ds Max, so that was pretty much it. Cause like I was literally a Disney child. Like I had the VHS tapes. I watched Disney. Like my peers are always like, "Oh yeah, I watched um, Little Mermaid," and I was like, "I want to do that." And I was like, "Nah, bro, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be here." Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why it didn't click to be like, I want to do what's on the screen. <laughs> right. <laughs> Even though I so, drew, so. I so you know. were automatically committed to the fact that, no, this, I'm going to be an electrical engineer. I don't care what anybody says. And then- I mean, when I was in eighth grade, I took algebra um, and I, you know, we, we had to have the protractor. I would like draw angles on my on my paper and then find the angle with my protractor for fun. Like, so. Yeah. <laughs> That's different. That is different. (laughs) (laughs) You are more so math for me in school. It was definitely, you know, English, comms, history, literature. That was the the fun part for me. But math, oh my god. Yeah, I hated English because I um I can talk now, but I didn't really talk. So I was very quiet. And so, you know, if I had a five page paper to, to write in, in school, I'm like, okay, let me write out what I can think of. And then it's like a paragraph and I'm like, I'm done. Like I've, I've, done, I've said everything I need to say. And so now I got to fill up like four and a half more pages. So I didn't really like English. I felt the same way about the feelings are just as mutual for math. How I felt about math <laughs> in both high school and college, it was a no-go for me. If I could have skipped over all math and math-based sciences, I probably would have. But I want to talk about the discovery of yourself as a animator and sort of your approach, right? Because I feel like every artist, everyone who is in um, the space of, of creativity where they get to be creative. And I know for you, you also do like 3D modeling. What is it um, that you have learned along the way when it came to how you develop your distinct style or approach to creating as an animator and then also now you know as a a teacher and and having had students and also teaching them the skill of animation you know what was that discovery like for you so um like even though I I grew up drawing I feel like I could copy things um like people would think I traced uh when I was younger And so I was really good at drawing from reference, but I could never get the things in my head to the paper. So like my original creations, it didn't always like hit when I tried to draw it on the paper. So I feel like 3D kind of gave me a way to like detach. Like I, it still takes skill to do 3D, but it was like, I didn't have to have that drawing skill which you know I still was able to draw very well just like 3D allowed me to like kind of shape and morph things um the way you 3D model is very like is similar to sculpting like there are digital sculpting programs now but it was kind of like a sculpting that I could do and kind of figure it out which has been a long journey for me of um I'm because of of that analytical part of my brain uh, I'm very step-by-step in learning and execution. And so as I try to learn, 
um, ZBrush, which is a digital sculpting um, program that is industry standard. It's very much playing around discovery, which is natural for a lot of creatives, but for me, it's actually hard to play around. And with ZBrush in particular, it's like, it's ugly until it's not. And so I'm a natural perfectionist. <laughs> and so it's like, I'm trying to train myself to enjoy the journey of a creation as opposed to the outcome because with like sculpting that the journey like the the outcome is far off and it's gonna just look ugly till it comes out so I feel like um what I've learned and, and try to teach is like to encourage p people as much as possible um something that I'm toying with doing more research on is like trying to teach um, in the form of coaching, because I know when I played basketball, uh, I, I, I'm, for my black woman animator thing, I, I came out with like a t-shirt called balling. And so I went to a basketball court and was like trying to shoot some like footage for like marketing purposes. And I hadn't played in a long time, but, and I kept missing, but I kept going. And so it was like, okay, there's this thing in sports or playing basketball where even though I'm kind of failing quote unquote over and over again, I still wasn't discouraged and I was like, okay, I'm going to try to make the three point shots like all around the court. And it just took me really long to do that. And so I'm like, okay, what persistence do, did I build in sports that I can transfer over to art and like help me and other people where maybe you're doing drills, quote unquote, while you're doing art. And, and it's like, you're not thinking about it as much as, um like because when I feel like as artists even with people who are more talented than me you realize how important the foundational skills are on the back end like you could still be an awesome artist I've interviewed some awesome artists where they're like oh that's why they wanted us to learn that at the beginning <laughs> and so and then, you know art is a continual journey so for me as like trying to get better in my skill um, learning like learning those foundational pieces is what I'm learning even though I'm a professional because in my um, personality the hard things are more interesting so for example my my stepmother gave me a book um, to learn the crochet when I was nine and I didn't make a scarf till I was in college somebody asked me to make a scarf so when I was nine I was making like house shoes purses like they were lopsided but I, I never thought about like making a scarf. So my natural propensity is to like go for hard things. So the foundations in art was just like, oh, I got to draw 50 circles. This is boring. Why am I doing this? But then once, once you become a professional, you kind of realize, oh, that's the importance of all the foundational things. That's a whole revelation in and of itself. It's ugly until it's not. I think right. that speaks which as a perfectionist is hard listen I think it speaks to just the creative spirit and and soul because I think uh, I think if you want anything in life and if you are a person who creates a lot of times there is that perfectionist mindset um, that can creep up like hey like this isn't necessarily where I want it or how I want it or you know, how I want it to approach it. But sometimes it's those raw things and moments and materials and <laughs> creative projects that when you put it out into the world as is, you know, and, you know, as you 
continue to evolve your um, style and your approach, you realize like, hey, all of the times that I just did it anyway, you know, it looked ugly, but I did it anyway. It wasn't necessarily where I wanted it to be, but I did it anyway is a primer for being able to put some of the best creative work out there. And so I, that's a word I'm going to keep in my back pocket. Like it's ugly until it's not. And something that I think every creative should remember um, when they go through their process and evolution of being an artist. Yeah, I feel like I've had a pretty cool journey with my relationship to perfectionism. I feel like I'm maybe 70% delivered from perfectionism. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I think I'm I think I'm, you know, on that boat with you. I think I've been getting to a place where it's just like, okay, push beyond. It's yeah. it may not necessarily be 100% where you want it to be, but if the heart of it and the core of it is good and solid and you are creating from a a place of authenticity and love and passion, then what is produced on the other side of that, despite, irregardless of the obstacles, is going to be something that can connect with somebody else. And that's just, you know, my core belief. So let's let's talk about it. I I mean, I know we spoke about you being a 3D modeler, but you guys, I mean, she's worked on so many different um, television shows in creating and modeling props and vehicles and backgrounds that you see on shows like Family Guy, The Cleveland Show, Batman, Scooby-Doo, The LeBron. I mean, just just so much. And I know at one point in time, you worked for a premiere animation studio in South Korea. I have to hear about, number one, how did you end up (laughs) uh, working for a studio in South Korea? And what was that process like? So I definitely always say that I accidentally got a job (laughs) working at an animation company in South Korea. Definitely was not like the... it wasn't the purpose of going to Korea. It wasn't the purpose of even going to that studio. Like it was totally an accident that worked out. So um, I graduated college in 2008, which was like a horrible time to become an adult in America. <laughs> uh, it was one of the many recessions we've had in the past couple, several decades. And so I was trying to, um, I, I had moved to New Orleans after graduating from college Um, Because I don't need help being cold, so I needed to go somewhere warm. (laughs) Uh, So I moved to New Orleans, and I was trying to find, like, a full-time job. I was working as a technology intern with Digital Opportunity Trust, like, helping teachers learn how to integrate technology into their classrooms. And so it was, like, a paid internship, and I was, like, performing so well that the lady was like, oh, we could pay you more. It it still won't be full-time dollars, but we could, like, pay you more. And it's like, well... I'm trying to like become an adult. So like I I need full-time money. And I decided that it was like January of 2009. I decided that if I didn't have a job in animation by, what was it? March or May, I would try to like go to Korea. Cause um, I was Facebook friends with one of my friends, one of the people I went to college with. And she um, was posting like pictures of her, like, 
bungee jumping and doing rafting and stuff like that, which is so interesting because we knew each other in college, but we didn't talk like that. But it was just like so interesting what she was doing. I reached out to her and asked her, like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what are, what are these pictures? And she was saying that she taught, she was teaching English in Korea. And before that point, I had never heard of the concept of teaching English overseas. And so um, I was like, okay, if I don't get a job by, you know, March, May, I'll just go teach English in Korea. And so May, June was when I started applying. And luckily, you know, ignorance is bliss because I didn't realize if you want to be in Korea by August, you should probably start applying in March. <laughs> and so because I didn't know that, I just was applying. And I did a lot of research because, you know, out, outside looking in, it looked um, very spontaneous. But I was like looking at all the Google searches like, OK, what, what am I about to do? How am I going to get around? Because I am horrible with directions. My sense of direction is trash. So I'm like, how do they get around? And then, you know, people were saying like landmarks. Which, you know, in certain areas of the country, you kind of get around with landmarks. But I was like, oh, man, but what, what about the streets? Like, they just name streets and don't use the names. So I was, like, really worried. And then I don't drink. And so I was like, oh, man, they have, like, a huge drinking culture. So I'm, like, um, just trying to do as much research to see what I'm getting into. Um, I went through a recruiting agency. And, uh, like, I, I kind of kept it from a lot of people. Um, that I was doing it. I'm sure I told told my close family, but as soon as I was placed in like uh, Seoul, I was placed in SMOE, which is like the Seoul Metropolitan Office of Education or something like that. And so I was like, okay, now I can tell people. So I like posted on Facebook that I was about to go teach English in Korea. And then the next day or the day after they were like, oh, they hired too many teachers. <laughs> so you're, you're not going to oh, go to that no. placement. And so I was like, like while you were already in Seoul? No, like I just had just got the placement. And so oh. I could start like all the paperwork. And so I was like, my thing was like, I just told everybody. <laughs> like right. I waited and then I told everybody. But luckily because I went through a recruiting agency, they were like, okay, we'll try to get you somewhere else. And the only reason I picked Seoul was because that was the only city I knew. And so I ended up being placed in Gwangju after that, which is like the fifth or sixth largest city. Um, and it's actually, I liked living in Gwangju better than when I lived in Seoul. But um, so I was placed in Gwangju and I was late to orientation because I, you know, had got placed so late. So I was like trying to get all my paperwork done and, uh, you know, needed the money and, you know, I... I had to get a document apostled and even though I got it done, I still don't know what that means. <laughs> like, so I can't even give nobody tips on like how to apostle. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just like, I don't, I don't know what it means. I got it done and then I got it sent to the recruiting agency. So I was like a little late to um, orientation. And so I taught at a all girls middle school, all girls high school for a year. And then I was about to kind of re up because, um, teaching English in Korea is very particularly if you're teaching at a uh, public school like if you take teach at a hagwon which is like a, a academy um, public schools are usually from maybe 9 a.m to maybe a 4 p.m and then Korean students they go to these hagwons which could be like math hagwons uh, karate hagwons science hagwons anything and so they continue their schooling from maybe 4 to 10 p.m so that's another uh, version of teaching you can do which I hear is horrible so I'm glad I got a public school so when you work at a public school it's very fairy tale. you I had like four classes a day 
and then I could like go out on the weekends and all that stuff. So I was going to do a second year and one of my friends, um, he was like, don't you have a degree in animation? I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> and so like, I'll, you know, <laughs> right. So I was like, okay, the further you get from graduating, the harder it is to enter your energy industry. So I probably should like, okay, let me, I, I probably should like move back to the States and continue trying. But before I did that, I was like, um, I've never seen an animation studio. So let me like email all these Korean animation studios and ask for a tour. So that's literally all I asked for. I was like, oh, I just want to see what it looks like. And so there was a incubator in Guangzhou that uh, responded and she took me around and, you know, she was like, oh, can you speak fluent Korean? I'm like, no. And she's like, well, you wouldn't be able to like work here. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, I didn't ask for a job, but okay. And so, and then I worked, went up to Seoul to Digital Animation, and they took me on a tour. And I remember I was on the tour, and they're like, oh, let me, let's introduce you to Carl. And so they took me to the 2D animation room, and there was like cubicles on each side, and there was like this long path, and at the end of the path to the right, it was like Carl, and he was like a black man. I'm like, whoa, I didn't think I was gonna see a black man at a Korean oh, animation wow. studio. Yeah. I'm like, a shock. I'm like, and so apparently, you know, a lot of the American animation studios, like, you know, Fox and WB and stuff, they have overseas directors who have like a grasp of the culture of American um, animation storylines, and so they can very much help with. Uh, any disconnect that the Korean, Japanese, you know, Singapore, all these studios have. And so he was an overseas director for Cleveland Show. And then the vice president and president took me back to their office and they're like, oh, do you have a demo reel? So a demo reel is a portfolio. It's just a portfolio. We do it in video form. We kind of show off our work. And so I was like, no, but I can have one. And so for the next four months, in between teaching classes, after school, and on the weekends, I worked on my first demo reel, which is partially why I didn't get a job when I was in America, <laughs> to, to be honest. Um, and then almost four months to the day, I like sent them the link to the portfolio, and then they invited me back up, and they like offered me a position. I remember sitting in the chair like, it was kind of scary because when you're um, teaching English, they provide your apartment for you. And so I was like, in my mind, I'm like, I, I got to find my own apartment in a foreign country. Like, how difficult is that going to be? But yeah. when I was sitting in the chair, I was like, okay, I guess, you know, God wouldn't present me with this if it wasn't going to work out. So I just said yes. And then the vice president ended up, like, helping me a lot. And she helped me in the immigration office and getting my visa. Because actually, like, they played off like it was like an internship. But when you go to foreign countries, um, they don't just be hiring everybody. Like you can't just go to a foreign country and be like a sweet street sweeper. Like you have to, like usually for immigration, they want like higher level jobs. And so, you know, animation is kind of in that IT, like high level, you have to have a degree space. And so I was able to get in that way, but they also want you to have experience, which I didn't have at that point. So I kind of like had to call some people back uh, in the immigration office, I had to call some people back home, like, can you, like, fluff the amount of, because I did some some stuff, but it was like, can you fluff the amount of time that I worked with you and all this stuff to, like, make it equal up to two years? <laughs> so that was beneficial that I was able to do that. And so, yeah, um, I accidentally got a job at an animation company. Um, and then I... I managed to get a job at one of the best ones because 
I helped another American dude get a job there because he was working at an animation studio that wasn't paying him regularly. So I got regular, like my digital animation paid you on time, all the time. Um, and so that guy, he's, um, he's American. He's originally from Virginia, but he lives in Atlanta now. He's half Korean, half Puerto Rican. So, um, and he was fluent in Korean. So when he worked for the studio, he had kind of a worse time because I couldn't speak fluent English, uh, fluent Korean. So, um, they had warned me about my director, how mean he was. And, but he can't yell at me because he can't speak, like nobody in my department could speak like fluent English. Like we could, we could both speak broken, whatever to each other, but he couldn't yell at me. So that was my, to my benefit. <laughs> so being in, being in a foreign country, you accidentally get this anim- animation job after teaching English and touring the studio. What was it like even navigating a new a whole new country and being able to get around and to meet people and um to connect because I'm sure of course because you had been there for a little bit there were some things that you may have been um acclimated to but what was that experience like yeah I feel like working already Understanding the culture very much helped me when I worked for the animation company because there are some very peculiar things about Korean culture that would have been like more of a culture shock working for a actual company because like, you know, real life, like, you know, teaching English is fairytale land, working at an animation studio is real life. So I was like working 12 hour days, six days a week and all that stuff. So it helped to understand a little bit about Korean culture when, you know, certain things would happen. Like I would try to go visit Carl because that's another black person at this studio but Koreans have this thought of like single people can't talk to married people and so it's it's like dumb <laughs> like and, like can't physically talk to them like it's like taboo for me as a single person and him to be married and I'm like visiting him and talking to him and but it, but it's like we're both black though and like I'm I'm pretty sure if they Wherever they go in the world, they try to find other Korean people. So the fact that they acted like they didn't understand while I was trying to connect with another black person in a, a company full of like Korean people was dumb to me. I st- like I, I I lessened how much I would like go visit him, but I would still go visit him because like I need to I need to speak with somebody who speaks fluent English. But as far as like navigating a foreign country, I remember when I got to the orientation for teaching and, you know, we all dispersed to our um, own cities. My, uh, my, my co-teacher from my high school was taking me around Guangzhou and showing me both my schools and stuff like that. And then I made sure, because I know I'm bad with directions. So I was like, please write down where I live on a piece of paper because I can't speak Korean yet. And so I'm like, write down in Korean where I live so I can give it to like any taxi driver or whatever. So if I, if I want, even if I want to explore my neighborhood, like, and that's how bad my direction, sense of direction is. Like I could have explored my neighborhood and possibly like went down the street and turned right and been lost. Like, so I'm like, write down where I live so I can give it to somebody so they can show me how to get to where I live. And so it wasn't that bad. Cause basically you just tell people where, what, bus stop or subway station you want to go to and then you go from there so I like would tell people the bus stop that was close to my house and then I would recognize eventually I recognized and be like okay I I just walk down the street and so when he dropped me off after I got my like uh, him to write it down I remember sitting on my bed and being like I just feel like a dot 
in Korea and because I don't know where I am in relation to anything else. Like I don't know anything about the Korea. I don't know anything about Gwangju. So I'm just like sitting on my bed. Like I'm just a dot in the world. <laughs> and I don't know what anything is. But you know, I eventually I feel like, you know, living in a foreign country, particularly when you don't know the language is like an adventure every day. You're like you gotta figure out basic stuff. Like you gotta figure out how to go to bank. You gotta figure out how to go to the grocery store. <laughs> you gotta figure out how to go everywhere. Like I I literally never got dry clean because I was like, I don't think I'm prepared for what that conversation will entail. <laughs> I could like figure out like I could I could Google what the first couple sentences are, but then they go and start asking me stuff, and I'm gonna not know not know what they're talking about. I'm sure it could have been figured out, but of course I'm a perfectionist. I'm like all in my head, so I'm like, nope, never gonna get dry cleaned. <laughs> so I eventually like um I took like um Korean level one. I should have took Korean level two, but I didn't. And um uh or did I take level two? I'm not sure if I took level three, but I did take a Korean class and. I did, I did not, I never became fluent, but by the time I left Korea, they were calling me Hanguk Saram, which means Korean person, because I could pronounce the heck out of languages, like, when I was in seventh grade, or no, eighth grade, I took a class called Exploring Languages, and um, we would explore a different language, like, every two weeks or something, and my, and my teacher was, like, Italian, and I had, you know how you, they go around class and ask you to read a passage out of the book. So I was reading a passage. I think we, I think it was Italian that week. And I was reading a passage out of the book. And then I look up and like everybody's looking at me. And I'm like, what are y'all looking at? Because, you know, as an introvert, I'm like, oh, no, people are looking at me. Like, why are y'all staring at me? <laughs> like, what did I do? And then my teacher was like, wow, you have like really good pronunciation. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so um, when I was learning Korean, at first, I felt like to pronounce it correctly, I was like making fun of them. But then eventually you move kind of past that m mental block. And then I'm just like pronouncing it really well. And the importance I felt of being able to pronounce the um, language well is because Koreans aren't used to other people speaking their language. So like in America, we have the Southern accent, all these other accents. And we can, under and it was a lot of times if we try hard enough, we can understand foreigners speaking our language, but Koreans are really not used to other people speaking Korean. So if you don't pronounce it perfectly almost, they're not going to know what you're talking about. So that's why I kind of wanted to learn how to pronounce it well as well, because particularly in Gwangju, there could be two different areas of the city that sound very similar. So if you pronounce it incorrectly, you go and be paying a lot of money in your taxi because they're gonna be like oh you said this and I'm like no nah, I said this and so you gotta get to where you're going yeah no that makes a lot of sense and it's great that you had pronunciation on your side because when it comes to me that's the one thing I lack uh for learning other languages so I'm just like oh man like I wish I could um pronounce pronounce or enunciate like everyone else when it comes to different just those different nuances um within languages I want to get into just being a woman in the animation space especially here in the states um you know what are some of the common barriers that you see that we need to work on and in order to bring gender parity into the industry but also what have been some of your ex your personal experiences as a, a woman animator 
Um, I think a lot of times when conversations are had, like on social media, um, there's this idea, whether it's with, you know, any kind of diversity where there has to do with, you know, race, ethnicity, gender, there's always this um, thought from the majority where they're like, oh, well, nobody's, they have to be interested in first. And it's like, people are interested, um, but there are other reasons why people don't end up in the industry because um, it's known that approximately 50% of um, people in animation programs are women, but that doesn't match how many are in the industry. And mo- uh, mo- a myriad of reasons is like, like there's like this bro culture that can manifest in animation studios, even though um, it's a lot of like nerd isms. It's still bro nerd isms, <laughs> and so sometimes women don't feel comfortable. Um, not always re- related to any like type of sexual harassment, but sometimes related to that. Where there have been people who've gotten away with things, um, whether it's na- on national news or you know on the news or in private, there's people who have gotten away with things. Like um, after you know George Floyd, uh, there was like very much a lot of um, movements that I saw on Twitter. Like I I finally got back on Twitter. And so there was one, like the initial movement of um, <clears throat> Brianna Williams from Black and Animated um, uh, is a group and a podcast. Um, she, you know, just simply tweeted, hire more Black animators. And so that was like a very, like the start of like a very, a conversation in that space. And then there was like a second wave of uh, women and possibly men in the animation and comic book space who were outing um, people who have sexually harassed them. And then third, there was um, a wave of college students um, outing their universities and animation programs for the discrimination they endured while in the program. Um, and that all was activated by like all the George Floyd stuff. And so, wow. yeah, so there, um, there, like there is interest, but just like any like STEM thing, it is, you know, people have these programs to get more people into um, these pl- spaces, but they don't make the space inviting. I, what is the the, the phrase? Um, you're getting invited to the party, but you're not getting invited to dance. Like, okay, I'm in the space, but some people don't hang out with others enough to know what's off-putting about their behavior or there's a lot of like unconscious bias there's a lot of like liberal white people who think they're not racist <laughs> and they do racist things unconsciously where mm-hmm. um sometimes it's even like because I'm hyper observant like my dad always told me to be observant which is like a gift and a curse because sometimes I'll like say what I've observed and people think I'm like losing sleep over it it's like no I just see this (laughs) I don't care I don't I mean I care that's happening but it's just like I don't know I just am hyper observant so there's sometimes where uh white coworkers will like be in the slack channel and be like um praising each other but but when other people like black people or or something Asian people can go either way but when a black person does something they're not giving the same praise and I don't think they even notice that they're not doing it. And sometimes they're like in the way 
kind of like white supremacy works that they're giving praise to white people for doing basic things and not giving praise to black people for doing awesome things which is even more offensive <laughs> and so um and this is from like liberal white people so it's a lot of like unconscious bias uh that exists and then i remember i did a video on my channel about uh the uh annenberg uh study they teamed up with women in animation Mm -hmm. to talk about how to get more um, women in animation. And I feel like a lot of their solutions at the end of their paper was, was like, too late. Like, you're, oh, we should um, go to specific colleges and we should create, like, um, uh, these groups at our uh, companies. But it's like, okay, if you want to get more people in there, you have to start at middle school level and get them actually interested in going to these places if you want to get black and brown people interested in these things because in the history of our communities, I feel like it's been, um, and it still is like a culture of like survival. So a lot of parents are not advocating for their children to be in the art realm, even though yes. with technology, it's more prosperous. And so yes. there's still this like starving artist trope, even though I, I'm making good money. Even when I lived in Louisiana, I had a really good, um, the, I re had a really decent salary for living in a place that isn't even an animation like hub so um and I remember talking to a, a youth group in New Orleans and this young lady like ran up to me like oh my god thank you for talking to me because like my mom thinks I'm gonna be poor <laughs> and so and that's wow. why I do like that's why I speak and I so my platform like my black woman animator platform is very much about speaking obviously to kids but also to parents because and I like I posted a recent snippet uh, not a recent, I recently posted a snippet of an old interview that I did with my father before I moved to Los Angeles, where I was asking, like, it's called, like, how to be a supportive parent, because a lot, there are parents that are, are interested in supporting their child, they just don't know how, because not everybody has a neighbor who is an animator or animation professional, so I'm, like, your neighbor. <laughs> That's what my platform is about, being your neighbor. I'm still stuck on the fact that you had the little girl run up to you and say, thank you for speaking because my mom thinks I'm going to be poor. And I just think about the entire ideology and mindset behind starving artists and this just idea that to be an artist means that you will not be profitable or you will not be as successful as someone who is in a more um, technical STEM focused, you know, industry like engineering or like um, medicine or, you know, something more driven towards the sciences or math. But when it comes to art, why do you think that is the common idea or theme that we see interweave throughout arts culture? Even again, like you said, starting young when kids say I want to be an artist I want to be a musician I want to be a singer the automatic thought is well you're not going to make money doing that that's you still got to live you still and you see so much of that and how can we get better because I I see the different programs and things being created and my gripe is it's great to empower people to um be moved towards the arts, right? 
that's one thing. And I think that's great. It's great to cultivate that, that skill, mm-hmm. that passion. But what is it we can actively do to resource those who want to be um, artists and resource them in a way where they have the tools to be successful, where they have the funding to be successful, where they have the relationships that will actually um, actively be beneficial to their profitability as an artist. Um, And so I think there's a, a huge difference between empowering and doing the work as far as studies and things like that, which need to be done, but also there is more work that needs to be done in order to activate artists mm-hmm. in a way where we no longer have this looming idea or thought that to be an artist means that you are going to starve. Yeah, I feel like <clears throat> with like parents, I remember seeing a tweet where this like lady was saying how her child was like trying to pursue something artistic and like kind of failed and you could tell that she didn't even support her child with the thing and it's like how do you logically not understand that if you want your child to be like a doctor or a lawyer and you're always supporting them that that contributes to them being successful but your child wants to be an artist and you're like begrudgingly doing something or not even supporting them at all and then they fail like it's a surprise you didn't even support them like it would be a different thing if you like supported them and they still failed but to for some parent to be like oh it was it was dumb and I didn't support them and they failed like no duh <laughs> like, but um for me luckily I had like um supportive parents and um I like I was not a, a like a Barbie doll child and I, I like I felt like I had my first Barbie my niece got me it for like the graduation Barbie when I graduated college I feel like that was possibly my first Barbie maybe if I, I've had one before then but I like I asked my dad we um in the past several years like what did I always ask for and I always asked for art supplies and I always got art supplies and and I actually just listened to a TikTok today um where the young lady uh they were kind of talking about like autism and poverty but she was saying like when her family was more poor they didn't have the money to give her like art supplies but she still like figured it out because in poverty like you know poverty and being black we'd be figuring out how to do stuff with the the least and so she was like buying tablecloths at like you know dollar general or something like that and and posting up to make a green screen and all this stuff and they are they're like she's saying how they're actively seeing her do that and then when they once they got more money they they didn't transfer any of that money to getting her art stuff like she still had to buy her own art supplies so it's like some some people look at the the, um, passion that their child is having and doesn't and don't pour into it but in general as a society not even related to anything race gender people do not respect artists (laughs) like if you look at the current ai conversation where people are essentially just like oh get over it like um because with the AI thing, um, the, the algorithms that they use have to take from other artists' work. And so they're taking all their artists' work and feeding it into this machine and then not paying them for it. And then some people who are using this AI art uh, programs are making money from it. So the people who, are, who spent their years building up their skill are not getting paid for it. But the people who are like typing in words for like two minutes are getting paid for it. And so um, I can see how there's this idea. It's such a dichotomy of people understand that they can't do it, 
but then they think it's easy for us to do it because there's this like there's this like savant thought where people think that us being artists is just like this god-given thing which it is for some people but there's still work into it i I remember um like watching um kevin on stage um talk to his like uh because i watched their podcast and everything and like him and his uh photographer joshie guns like spent like two years trying to convince kevin sage's wife that she was creative (laughs) and like she finally gave in but it's like she didn't think she was creative like when she would explain it she would be like oh but i have to do research like she is like does nice interior design does all these other things and she's like oh i have to do research i have to look up stuff blah, blah, blah. but as creative as creatives we know that's the process like y'all think it comes from man yeah. on high and it's right. actually we use reference we we worked tw- hours hundreds of thousands of hours building up our skill it wasn't like it's just like michael jordan like there's or or any like athlete there is natural talent but it only takes you so far you have to do put in the hard work to get even more talented so there's a lot of people in our society that think that art is a natural talent and not a worked for talent and so that's why they don't respect it and so um and then there's the history of yeah like people only think of art as um you know you have to die to be recognized or you're like selling stuff out of your car or you're just it they think of art as in a very basic whether it's painting or drawing and then there's today there's way more ways to be artistic or even if you think of singing they only think of singing in one way as opposed to like all the ways that you can make money doing it like even even like people who still make fun of like adults who still make fun of of kids who want to be YouTubers and it's like y'all know a YouTuber is just an entrepreneur like it's, that's literally what it is like why are y'all making fun of people for wanting to be YouTubers like oh it's oversaturated like entrepreneurship is oversaturated there's still people being successful so it's just a myriad of like not respecting people or thinking archaically about what art is and so not understanding the multiple veins of where you can get be an artist and be successful like even with singing like you'd be a a background artist even if you're not a lead artist you still make money They're, they're just not that and like even as a rapper like people not under I wish like more black people promoted that the producers are making a lot of the money and you should be a producer I mean there's more of that now but the rapper is like the least paid person <laughs> and you have to go to on tour to get your like money and stuff like that so uh, I just think it's like a lack of knowledge and a lack of respect that causes all of this Mm, you have to respect the process and the present which is the gift of art and I think what you said I mean you said so many good things but it's it is so important to for people to be educated about the process and you know the time and the effort that different artists put into their work it takes a lot it takes you know it takes a lot um and I think it it's time, it's high time, as, as some people would say, for us to get to the point where we're also educating the fans, right? We're also um, educating, uh, even though, I mean, some corporations and, of course, bigger companies and brands already know what they're doing. 
And, um, but I think calling them to the carpet, calling them out, because it is important to make sure that artists are, are being compensated for their work, but also their work is being respected. Yeah, as far as educating the fans, that's why I created like a video um, on my channel called the Black Animation Ecosystem, because I feel like as a community, um, we're like the, if you take the Black American community, we're like the fifth or largest, the fifth or sixth largest country as far as our spending power. So my thought to getting more people interested in like my my um idea is to build up an animation ecosystem that is not dependent on Hollywood and I and one theory that I have for doing that is like taking things black people are already interested in and like putting that together with what we create in animation like first of all I'm very passionate about animation it's not just for kids because animation is a medium it's not a genre and so we still have people who just look at a thing that looks like a cartoon and automatically think they can watch it with their children so they that's how you have like parents watching trying to watch intergalactic with their children or rango or like sausage party or something like that and it's like why, like y'all don't look at ratings y'all don't do yeah. research before y'all like present exactly. anything to your children like y'all just just kind of trial and error and uh, I, okay i guess there's a there's a website called common sense media that lets you know whether or not the the, the thing is appropriate for your child just to let y'all know and i really but, love it. <laughs> they, they do the research by the way i i really enjoy it yeah i love black love yes i love animation love. form yes and just the colors that were used and everything it was just so beautiful yeah so in america it's just it, it's become like a very it's like a very capitalist thing, like in Japan and like in uh, Europe, it's known as something that adults can enjoy. But because of like the capitalism of um, like trying to make the money from the toys and the cereal and all that stuff, like uh, there was a huge period where um, animation was seen as just for kids because that's who the target audience was. But in the history of animation animation was literally was uh, originally targeted towards adults like they played the animations before the movies and stuff like that so and mostly adults were going to movies so in the beginning of the creation it was a targeted towards adults so it just had a swing because of certain you know american things but now you know we're in a space in the past 15 20 years where we're trying to train american audiences to realize that it's just a medium it's a way to tell a story and it's not yeah. necessarily a genre of for for kids so why did you feel it was important for you to create um black woman animator and you know what do you feel should be done to continue to encourage others starting you know at a young age to get into the animation space yeah, so um, Black Woman Animator was definitely started because it took me so long to realize um, animation as a career. And so I didn't want other people to experience that. Um, and the reason I call myself, you know, professionally, I'm a 3D modeler. But if I call myself Black Woman Modeler, people are going to be like, oh, you're on the runway. Like, it's, it's, it's going to be annoying. So I was like, let me just call myself Black Woman Animator, even though I don't animate. <laughs> like, I have the, I can, I can animate if. I had to but that's not my specialty so it's just an easy way to put my like I the point of me being called black woman animator is like somebody sees my name like a little black 
boy, black girl, even a Hispanic boy or girl sees black, sees a woman, sees animator, and then they want to talk to me. That's that's the whole point of me being called that. I don't need to be accurate to what I actually do. I, I need to be accurate to what I want people to, how I want people to respond. So mm, that's um, so good. Yeah. So like I created the uh, platform um like my earliest email is 2008 so I guess I created the, I don't know if I created the moniker in college or um I think one of my college friends said it was possibly before 2008 like when I was actually in college I really don't remember but once I moved to New Orleans um it was more uh, mostly about doing like speed, speaking engagements holding workshops and doing classes so it was very much a real in life thing at first and then um because I'm you no know, really observant I noticed like people in people from Louisiana either stay in Louisiana or leave and come back so with me kind of doing all these things to try to get more people interested in animation I was I felt like I was doing them a disservice because there's no guarantee that they're going to leave to be prosperous because there's at the time there was like very minimal companies in um, Louisiana and even the companies that are in New Orleans are very much for like tax credits so they'll be animate like game studios in new orleans but that that location is just to get the tax credits and they'll have like a little penny any jobs where they don't even pay that much and all the real jobs are still in like california or wherever their their other their main office is and so i felt bad and so i was like i don't want to build up this workforce that is not going to have jobs because like new orleans doesn't need help with that like the main um, industry is tourism and people don't even get paid a lot for that. And, you know, gentrification is happening. That's why I took my platform online. um, So I could like be able to affect people who would be willing to move and go to where they could be successful. So um, when I first started uh, making videos, it was very much talking to the camera. Like my first uh, video, like my first produced video on my uh um channel was uh, diversity in animation so my thought of like wanting to make it so like everybody from 5 to 85 could be in animation like not as necessarily always it being a career like sometimes it could be a hobby um and so and diversity in the diversity of like um not just like race gender but um even disabled people like that's what the video is kind of talking about and even in the animation industry currently, um, I feel like you can you can throw a rock and hit people who are interested in anime, interested in Star Wars and all that stuff. So I talk about like the diversity and the diversity of like um, the diverse, like being more like a lawyer. Like you can't throw a rock and just guess what a lawyer is interested in. <laughs> and so, um, and I'm not interested in anime. I don't watch anime and I don't watch all of the Star Wars things. Like, I don't even know if I've seen all of the movies, to be honest. Not that I have anything against it. It just, it's like I was watch, growing up watching Fresh Prince and Lame and Seagull. So, um, so, uh, and then a lot of more talking to the camera of giving tips. And then um, uh, something that's prominent that I do now is interviews. And so, the, of course, uh, what that came out of was, you know, being black and not having access to to what I needed so I had a laptop where um I couldn't run like Adobe After Effects proficiently like I had to do a lot of 
stuff like I, you know, if, if I wanted to create a, a Adobe After Effects um, project, I would have the video, but I would have to put like a black slate over it because I did my computer couldn't run the video while I was editing. So I would like edit by sound and like like edit add the graphics when I could and stuff like that. And so that was hard. So I'm like, okay, what content can I create where it's still according to my mission? but it's easier to edit. Like I can use Windows Movie Maker and like chop the beginning, chop the end. So that was like interviewing people. And now that's like the most prominent thing I do on my channel right now. And um, it's really taken off over the, I guess three years that I've been doing it. And so I've interviewed almost like a hundred black animation professionals. And that's not even like a third of my list. And so, um, yeah, I just, you know, was able to use video to, you know, talk with people virtually. I've talked with people from Nigeria, Trinidad and Tobago, um, all over the diaspora, all over our country, um, and, you know, veterans and um, people who are relatively new. I talked to a young lady in the UK who um, she was playing uh, Second Life and there weren't that many black hairstyles. So she just started creating black hairstyles so I interviewed her because her path was kind of unique like she just was creating these little sets so that people could have like braids and like you know swoops and stuff in second life um so I um yeah like now I, I do these interviews I'm getting like more prominent people on my platform and I have like a lot of ideas um that are unique um uh, and in like stored in Google Drive and on Google Docs, it's just the time to do them and to be able to like execute because some of them are like more large, they're larger ideas that request uh, require funding. <laughs> so, um, but I, I write down all my ideas so that just in case I'm in an elevator with somebody who wants to give me money, I already got ideas. <laughs> so I ain't got to think of nothing. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. So how can our listeners get in touch with you, follow what you're doing and stay up to date with what's next? So um, I'm like black woman animator everywhere, like Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, B-L-K-W-M-N-A-N-I-M-A-T-O-R, all one word, black woman animator. And then, like, for my personal work, I've done a recent rebranding as, like, Deb's 3D Modeler. So if you want to see any of my personal work uh, where I'm actually 3D modeling, that's Deb's 3D Modeler. Awesome. You guys heard it here. Thank you so much, Deborah, for being on the State of Film Art podcast.